Oh, how I love thy law, it is my meditation all the day. Thy commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I might keep your word, and not turn aside from thine ordinances. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have inclined my heart to perform thy statutes forever, even to the end. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love thy law. Thy testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul observes them. The unfolding of thy words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth wide and panted, for I long for thy commandments. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Father, in a day when your word is just ignored and mocked and rebelled against and denied is true, thank you that those who have been born again, who have been regenerated by the Spirit, have a different outlook on life. We know that sin can come into the human heart, even of a believer, and cloud his thinking and curb his passion. So we ask our Father that today you would have your way in us, that you would speak to us by the Spirit of God. You've told us to come out and to be separate. You've called us to be a different people. You've asked us to make the most of our times because the days are evil. So help us moment by moment in this new week to walk in the Spirit. We pray humbly this morning as we open your word that you would open our hearts. I pray for the meetings this morning and this church as it gathers in different places. The Spirit of God would move on those that know him and those who have never met him. May in this fresh week, if we have failed in the last... As we go this week, help us to make converts, believers, disciples of all peoples. Help us to look for opportunities to invite people to share a testimony and to give the gospel. And when we do, help us to make it clear. Now, my Father, I pray today that you would fill me and anoint me and use me, that Jesus would be lifted up and glorified. And I ask in his holy name, amen. Take God's Word with you this morning, Revelation chapter 18. If you're here for the first time, we are in a chapter-by-chapter and verse-by-verse study of the revelation of Jesus Christ, as it's called, given to the Apostle John and then given to us in turn. Now, we've been learning that the Bible teaches that at the end of time, right before the second coming, the greatest political leader in history will come on the scene, and he will emerge, the Bible teaches, from the former Roman Empire. He will have such control that he will have authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation, as Revelation 13 teaches. His empire will be the most extensive in all of human history. He will rule with a compelling dynamic that is both deceptive and demonic, and he will win over virtually everyone. He'll astound the world with his cleverness, with his solutions to the world's problems. He will be a savior of sorts. However, once his power is consolidated, 
he will show disdain and hatred and persecution towards true born-again Christians and towards the Jewish people. The Bible identifies this man with some 30 different titles. The most popular that we know him by is the Antichrist. Now, chapters 17 and 18 are probably the two most difficult chapters in the Revelation, but they are important because it teaches us how the Antichrist, among other things, will be able to consolidate his power. In Revelation chapter 17, we saw that he will use religion as a glue of sorts in which to bind the nations of the world. Up until we came to chapter 17, Babylon, this city, has only been mentioned twice. And now God takes two chapters to detail it. Chapter 17 in verse 1 opens with these words, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, we've been studying the bowl judgments, he says, come and see, I want to show you this great harlot. So we studied the great harlot. She is given the title also the mother of harlots. And we saw that God uses his people descriptively as a bride, both with the Jewish people in the Old Testament and with the church in the New But false religion is a form of harlotry. And so God pushes the pause button again. He brings us into slow motion as in the 17th chapter, he shows us this false religious system that will come on the scene. In chapter 17, it is a real city and it is a real system. And we will see the same here in the 18th chapter. Chapter 17 describes a religious system called Babylon. Chapter 18 describes an economic system also called Babylon, and both are destroyed at different times. Now, Babylon is an important city in the Bible. There are 404 verses in the Revelation. 44 of them have to do with this city and this system called Babylon. That's 11% of the book of Revelation, so it's pretty important to God. God knew that his people, not just at the end of time, who will be pouring over this book, but in every dispensation that God's people in every generation would need to understand this system and this city that we might guard our own hearts because there are expressions of it in every generation, though it will be codified in a unique way during the tribulation. There are two cities that are mentioned more than any other two cities in all of the Bible. One is Babylon, and the other is Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. The last time it is mentioned is in Revelation chapter 21, over 800 times. It's pictured as God's city. It's called the holy city. It is a city that God has set apart out of all the nations of the world. Now, you may think that Washington or Moscow or Beijing or Tokyo or Paris or New York are more important, but in God's Word, the most significant city in all of human history in both Testaments is the city of Jerusalem. But the devil is going to try to usurp the place and plan that God has for Jerusalem by creating an unholy capital, an unholy city from which the Antichrist will reign. It will not be the city of God as Jerusalem is termed. It will be the city of man. 
And Babylon is the second most featured city in the Bible, mentioned some 300 times. First, it's introduced to us in Genesis 10. The last time you find it is in Revelation 18, where it is finally destroyed. And just as Jerusalem represents the plans and purposes of God, so does Babylon. So the Old and New Testament alike are full of prophecies concerning Babylon. If you remember, we studied the genesis of this city. We took a whole sermon almost on it as an introduction to Revelation 17, where we looked at the Tower of Babel. In the Septuagint, it's called the Tower of Babylon. Babel is just a shortened version of the name Babylon. And if you remember, Nimrod pulled together a federation of people to try to exalt himself above God. And the first unified religion in all the world takes place there where they tried to deify the creation as seen in that ziggurat and dethrone the creator. And Nimrod in the Tower of Babel, of course, was just a prototype of the coming Antichrist. In Genesis, in kernel form, all the way through it, you find by illustration, by type, pictures of what God is going to do in the future. And we will see that this Antichrist who is yet to come, who will come out of the Roman Empire, will mimic Nimrod in many ways. So with that said, we want to, uh, we've studied the first three verses, and if you weren't here before Easter, for Revelation 18, 1, 2, 3, you might want to go back and listen to it. It was really foundational to the whole chapter. You can download the app, search the scriptures, or go to communitybiblechurch.us and get it there. But we're going to read beginning in verse 1 so we have a flavor of the flow. Revelation 18, follow along. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities." Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. And the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and am not a widow, and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, And she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Now, it's been many weeks since we've been in the Revelation, so let me bring you into the context of this chapter. The Bible teaches that Christ was dead, buried, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he is coming back again. And we will see that second coming when we come to the 19th chapter. And then when we come to the 20th chapter, we will see that judgment expressed where in the end all unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire. Now when the lost are removed, Christ will then set up his kingdom. 
And the Bible teaches that the kingdom promised in the Old Testament, the length of which is given in the New Testament, that he will literally rule and reign for 1,000 years. Now, this next slide gives you kind of a visual picture between the distinctions of the first and second coming. The first time Jesus came, he came as a savior. He came to give his life on the cross. He paid in full your sin debt and mine so that we could be free. But when he comes again, he is coming as a judge. The first time he came, he came in humiliation. But when he will come again, he will come in exaltation. He came the first time as a suffering servant, but when he comes again, he will be a sovereign king. The first time he experienced mockery. The second time he will experience majesty. The first time he came as a sower in grace. When he comes again, he will be a reaper in wrath. There will be no tree for him to hang upon but there will be a throne for him to sit upon. We'll study that in the 20th chapter. He came the first time in poverty to a cross. He will come a second time in majesty, riding on a cloud, the Bible says. When he came the first time in mockery, they put a reed in his hands. When he comes the second time, he will literally rule with a rod of iron. So chapter 19 describes what happens after the return of Christ, and then chapters 20 to 22 will describe what happens after that return. So right now, we're in that section, chapters 6 through 18, that represents the time of the great tribulation before Christ rules and reigns for a thousand years. Now, chapter 18 is a very important chapter for us to understand because it gives us a picture of the world conditions just before Jesus comes to set up his kingdom. More than any other time in all of human history has our world been tied together with a single economy. When I was a little boy, that was not true. Pretty much the nations of the world were somewhat independent. Now we have a global economy. Everything has changed, and the greatest expression of that global economy is yet to come, and it will come in Revelation 18. Now, remember, there's a difference between Babylon and 17 and Babylon and 18, so let me just review that for a moment. Revelation 17 describes what's called Mystery Babylon. It's also given the title Babylon the Great. It's an important title. She is called the mother of harlots. And what's described in chapter 17 is the religious system. But now in chapter 18, once the, uh, the peoples of the world are glued together through these various religions, we come now to the 18th chapter where we find a picture of economic Babylon. Now, Babylon will exist for two different reasons, sharing much in common. Number one, it is the same city, both Babylons. It's in a place called Rome, and we let Scripture interpret Scripture, and we saw that it could only refer to one city on the place of the earth. Both chapters describe this city as having a form of satanic power behind it. Both chapters describe the Antichrist, called the beast in that chapter, as the sovereign ruler over religious Babylon and then over economic Babylon. Both chapters hate the saints of God. They slaughter the tribulation believers. And both chapters 
we will see are associated with the kings of the earth and with fornication, sexual immorality. Yet when you come to chapter 18, there are some marked differences between mystery Babylon in chapter 17 and Babylon the Great, as it's also called in chapter 18. And it's not by accident that it's called Babylon the Great in both chapters because it's referring to the same place. And there is a formal title that is given to Babylon in the 17th chapter. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. She's the mother of all harlotry. And we saw in the context, it's talking about the religions of the world. There are religious abominations that are going to be expressed during the first half of the tribulation where the religions of the world come together in an eclectic way and they join together. And yet, in fact, why don't you turn back to chapter 17 for just a moment. Turn back to chapter 17. Look, if you will, at verse 9 where this place is described. John says here, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. This one world religion where the woman or the harlot sits is described as a place of seven mountains. Now, there's a lot of novels that are written today about end times, and that's what they are, novels. Some of them have degrees of biblical truth, but a lot of them are filled with inaccuracies. One popular novelist describes this coming Babylon as current-day Iraq. That's impossible. Tim LaHaye his Left Behind series describes this religious Babylon as being the city of New York. Others have chosen places like Mecca or Jerusalem. And the temptation sometimes is to interpret the Bible through current events rather than to interpret current events through the Bible. We know, as verse 18 indicates, that this place, Babylon, is called the great city and that she is a city that sits on seven mountains, a city that sits on seven mountains. Seven mountains or seven hills, the word is used interchangeably, and so different translations in your Bibles, it's of the same place. And we're told here that the kings of the earth will commit spiritual fornication. Now, the city, as we narrow down through Scripture, could be only one place in the world, and it is the city of Rome, the capital of the former Roman Empire. And since the Antichrist, the Bible teaches as we studied in Daniel, comes out of the former Roman Empire, we're not entirely surprised that the capital of that former empire becomes the capital city for the coming Antichrist. Now, let me refresh your memory as to why Babylon cannot be Iraq or New York or Mecca or some other place. Babylon today, that is Babylon in Iraq, is not a great city. And God had prophesied about that place in the future. Let me read to you from the prophet Isaiah chapter 13. There God says, Behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes against them, against the Babylonians, who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb. Sounds like modern-day America. Nor will their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And then he says in verse 20, it will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. And that's true to this day. So when Saddam Hussein decided he wanted to rebuild ancient Babylon, he started, he laid a few bricks. 97% of it still lays desolate. And actually the buildings he built were outside of the old city of Babylon. And today, as I showed you pictures earlier, they're in total disrepair and disrepute. It cannot be the place that Saddam Hussein said, because God said that he would overthrow Babylon like Sodom and Gomorrah, and that it would never be inhabited again. And even those few buildings he built are not inhabited, and it has never been inhabited in several thousand years. Neither does the ancient city of Babylon meet the criteria of this place called Mystery Babylon, because by definition, a mystery is something that was hidden in the Old Testament, but is revealed in the New Testament. So it's not by accident that God refers to this place as, as Mystery Babylon, because he's speaking in symbolic terms. We already saw God do that with the city of Jerusalem. In Revelation 11 and verse 8, he says, the great city which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, referring, of course, to Jerusalem. Likewise, in 1 Peter 5, the apostle Peter mentions Rome as Babylon, which obviously could not be Iraq because it was uninhabited in the, in the apostle Peter's day as it is in our day. And yet he somehow symbolically says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Peter is sending salutations from the members at the church in Babylon, which was a code word, kind of like Wall Street is for New York. Babylon was a code word in the first century for the city of Rome and not by accident. Because Rome was a, a city of great size and splendor and power and also decadence and depravity. And by the way, it is well documented that by the Jews since 70 AD, they have referred to the city of Rome as Babylon to this day in the Mishnah and the Talmud. They call current day Rome Babylon. And the church fathers all call current day Rome Babylon. Why? because that's how you described it in code terms. If you wanted to speak about that wicked city that had its authority over you and the right to exercise the sword over you, you simply called it Babylon. Now, Revelation 17, 18 also tells us that God, through his angel, gives John an added meaning as to how we are to understand this entity known as the woman. Look at Revelation 17, 18. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. This tells us that the woman is both a false religious system and it is a city. Much like the term the beast refers both to a person and a kingdom, and we saw that. But please note, the woman is the great city, not will be the great city. He is describing a real place that was in existence when he wrote the book of Revelation in 95 AD, which of course totally eliminates places like New York or Hollywood or any other city that you can think of. 
So we need to be discerning, which is why verse 9 begins, here is the mind which has wisdom. In other words, the truth that he is about to share involves some spiritual insight if we're to interpret it correctly. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. The great city, the Bible says, sits on seven mountains. And so the earliest commentary that we have on the book of Revelation written by Victorinus tells us that these seven mountains, these seven hills, represented the city of Rome, and not by uh, chance. It was obvious to every first century reader. So Mystery Babylon, chapter 17, is describing this harlot of harlots, these false religious systems that are going to come together. And of course, when you finish chapter 17 with us, we saw that the ten kings went again with the Antichrist, went against this religious harlot and destroyed it with fire. Yet when we come to the 18th chapter, Babylon is not destroyed, and it is going to be destroyed not by man, but the second time by God Almighty. How is this going to play itself out? Well, I will not be at all surprised that what he is describing is Vatican City. Here's a picture of the Vatican City. It sits on 100-plus acres. It's governed by an absolute monarchy called the Pope. It has its own flag. Its citizenship is different from the rest of Rome. In fact, they have been granted a permanent observer status in the United Nations, not represented by the ambassador that serves the city of Rome and the rest of the country of Italy. They have their own. With that said, I find it interesting that there are two separate destructions. Now, I told you I didn't think anyone could be dogmatic to say that the Pope is the one who is going to lead this uh, initial bring all the religions together, but I documented for you how the last three popes, and especially Pope Francis, who has had some 25 meetings with all the religious leaders of the world, bringing them together, and in those meetings, he denied definitively that Jesus was the only way to God. That is sheer heresy. That is a false prophet who is speaking. And I take no pleasure in saying that because he leads a huge group of people across the world. But I will not be at all surprised if this will become the headquarters of all these world religions because understand it will not be the Roman Catholic Church exclusively at this time. It's going to be all of the religions of the world brought together, all the isms brought together. But this could possibly be the headquarters And so since we're told Babylon, religious Babylon, is destroyed, and yet the city continues, it might be that it's this center that is destroyed, and what continues is the rest of Babylon. If you look at chapter uh, 17 and verse 12, notice what we're told. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, and then drop down to verse 16 where he tells us how they joined with the Antichrist in destroying religious Babylon. And the ten horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot, this one world religion, and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Yet somehow this city on seven hills or seven mountains, depending on your translation, continues and it will later be destroyed by an act of God. And I think by the time we are finished with chapter 18, 
you will see that religious Babylon is slightly different from commercial Babylon that is highlighted in this chapter. Now, we studied chapter 17 in three sermons, and I just kind of reviewed them, three hours of preaching, but you might want to go back and listen to those if this is new to you. But God will glue, allow Satan to glue the governments of the world together with religion. There's something about religion that is binding. And initially, this bumper sticker that you will see on cars today will literally be fulfilled. The religions of the world will coexist. But in the midpoint of the tribulation, these ten kings are going to come together and they're going to destroy this multiplicity of religions. It's what Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. This chapter, 17, does not identify when that will take place, but Jesus does and the prophet Daniel does. That right in the middle of the seven years, the Antichrist is not going to be satisfied with all of these religions of the world having their own way and worshiping as they choose. He is going to want singularity of worship, And unless you worship him, you will worship no one. And he will control the world both religiously and economically through a mark. And unless you take the mark, 666, on your right hand or your forehead, you will be executed, beheaded. Revelation 20 verse 4 says, And millions who are converted during the time of the Great Tribulation will be beheaded. But the Antichrist will demand singular worship because he's egotistical like the devil. And with this singular worship, he will also control the economies of the world. And so this city, Rome, is going to become the richest city on the earth in the history of all, uh, in all of humankind. And the Antichrist has a compatriot. He's also called a second beast. We studied him. There's the beast, and then there's the second beast. He's also called the false prophet. And the false prophet will be the Antichrist compatriot to deceive multitudes of people with miracles. If you remember, we read in Revelation 13 of this false prophet. He performs great signs so that he can make even fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Great signs. These are not sleight of hand, hocus pocus kinds of things. These are real miracles, but not miracles from heaven, miracles from hell. Miracles empowered, empowered by the evil one. And Jesus spoke of this in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, as did the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica, where he tells us that the Antichrist coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all powers and signs and false wonders. And one of those false wonders that the false prophet will use is he will cause fire to come down out of heaven. Now, in Revelation 7, we studied the two witnesses, and we saw that they will mimic Moses and Elijah. The Bible teaches in Malachi chapter 4 that Elijah is coming again. That's why Some people would ask Jesus, are you Elijah? Are you the Elijah to come? Why did they ask that in the Gospels? Because Malachi 4 teaches Elijah is coming again before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And Malachi invited fire down from heaven. And maybe this false prophet will even quote Bible verses and claim to be that Elijah. We don't know. But we do know that he will mimic some of God's miracles. 
And when the Jewish people, of course, on one day asked Jesus to perform a sign from heaven, what did they ask? They asked for such a miracle. Call fire down out of heaven. And people at this time in human history will get their wish. The question is, who will they believe? We're told in Revelation 13 and verse 14, And he, the false prophet, deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, the Antichrist, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. We studied it three times in Revelation 13. I know I'm reviewing, but it's been six weeks, so your minds have already glazed over. So I'm trying to lift the fog a little bit, all right? Three times in Revelation 13, God speaks of the supernatural healing of a man who had been dead and had come back to life, not resurrected to life, that's unique to Jesus, but raised to life like Lazarus was raised to life. And so, um, he will use that false miracle such that in Revelation 17 and verse 16, we're told, and the ten horns which you saw, this ten-kingdom federation, and the beast, that is the Antichrist, these will hate the harlot, that is this one-world religion comprised of a multiplicity of religions there in religious Babylon, and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire." Put simply, the honeymoon between the beast, the Antichrist, and the woman, the harlot, is over. And he is going to demand singularity of worship. And of course, it's there in the temple. Part of the abomination of desolation is not just the Antichrist claiming to be God, but there will be a statue, an image of some kind that will literally come to life. And people will worship the image, and they will be encouraged to make similar images. And that will be the corker for every Jew who knows even a little bit of the Bible. That this man cannot possibly be their Messiah. Because God would not go against His Word and endorse idolatry. Now, while the exact time of, again, this event is not given... In Revelation, it is given in Matthew 24 and in Daniel 9. Now, you might be asking, well, why couldn't God uh, just allow both religious systems to exist side by side? You know, this multiplicity of religions. Why does it have to be destroyed? Again, because Satan has wanted worship. Revelation 13, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon. That's Satan, if you remember. The Bible interprets itself. It tells us Satan is the dragon. They worshiped Satan because he gave his authority to the beast, to the Antichrist. And they worshiped the beast, the Antichrist, saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? Satan has always wanted to be worshipped, and he's going to be worshipped. That's why, again, he is going to destroy and eat the flesh of religious Babylon and burn it with fire. So verse 17 indicates that this is all working according to God's plan, that God is over all this, for God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose, and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. God is orchestrating the events because the king's heart is in his hand. 
Now, here is a chart once again, and then we'll break into some new material to help you to see where we are at. The next event is the rapture. There's a space of time. It is short, days, possibly weeks. And then after the rapture, the one world ruler will step on the scene and he will establish a covenant with Israel. That will begin the seven-year time frame. In the first half of the three and a half years, there is the religion of the harlot, this multiplicity of religions brought together. But in the second half, there is the singular religion of the Antichrist. And of course, it's right here in the second half, in the middle, when the abomination of desolation has taken place, that people will receive the 666, and they will have to choose exactly whom they will follow. And sadly, billions of people will be deceived by the Antichrist. Why? Because they rejected the truth. You say, well, isn't this unfair? No, God has been plenty fair. God is a God of grace and mercy, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. During the first half of these seven years, he's had 144,000 Jews preaching the gospel. 144,000 Jews, Revelation 7, miraculously converted, and they're preaching the gospel to the whole world. And the people that they convert, indeed, are in turn preaching the gospel. He has two witnesses, no doubt Moses and Elijah, and they are preaching the gospel. There's an eternal angel who flies through the heavens, and that angel is preaching the gospel. And of course, it's during this time that Jesus says in Matthew 24 that this message will go out to the whole world. What we are trying to pull off today, he is going to pull off during this seven-year period through these various witnesses. Not to mention that there is another angel who's warning people to stay away from Babylon. He has already said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great who has made all the nations of the world to drink of the wine of her immorality. So God has been gracious. God has been kind. And that brings us here to the 18th chapter. Now, here in chapter 18, John hears four voices. In verses 1 to 3 that we studied last time, he heard the voice of condemnation. And so we heard this mighty voice of an angel announcing the destruction of Babylon the Great. Today, in verses 4 through 8, we're going to hear a second voice, the voice of separation. God calls you, God calls me, and God will call his people in that day as he has in every age to live differently. When we come to verses 9 through 19, we'll hear the voice of lamentation. We'll hear the voice of the kings and the merchants weeping and crying over the fall of Babylon. And then finally, when we come to verses 20 to 24, we will hear the voice of justification. God will give us the reason why he can justly destroy Babylon with his judgment. So today we're talking about the voice of separation. Come and be separate, God says. And if you're using your note-taking outline, there are three reasons and three ways in which God calls His people to be separate. The first reason, the first way is found in verses 4 and 5. We are to be separate from Babylon's deeds. We're to be separate from her deeds. Look now, if you will, at verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, "'Come out of her, my people.'" so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. So he hears another voice. Now, we've seen there are two words for another in Koine Greek. 
There's word, the word alos, another of the same kind. And there's the Greek word heteros, another of a different kind. So we have the word heterosexual and so forth. This is the word another alos of the same kind. It's the same kind as who? It's the same kind as the angel's voice in verse 1. It's another angel. So this is not God the Son or God the Father speaking. This is another servant, minister of God, another angel who is speaking. Now, please look again in verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. Now, this is an urgent call to get out of Babylon or Rome. And it's very similar to the call that Lot received in Genesis 19. Two angels came, whomever you have in this city, bring them out of this place. It's a very similar call that Jesus gives in Matthew 24, 16. When you see the abomination of desolation happening in the city of Jerusalem, when the Antichrist goes into that rebuilt temple, then you who are in the city should flee into the wilderness of Judea. And we studied that fleeing in Revelation chapter 12. This is God's call from heaven through an angel to one, literally and physically get out of that place because he's going to judge it, but it will also say to spiritually get out of that place, to not participate. Now, I know that sometimes we think, well, could a Christian during the tribulation commit sin? Yes. People who are converted after the rapture of the church will still have their sinful nature. And sin will be reigning like it has never happened in all of human history. The restrainer, God the Holy Spirit, will be gone. Hell will literally have a holiday across the planet. And if there was ever a time for an allurement, it will be during this time. And there will be many of God's people who will be living in Babylon, the city of Rome, during that time. And God says, come out of her, my people. Now, by the way, that slogan, what, stays in Ve- what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, is so far from the truth. Now, your wife may not find out what you did in Vegas, but God sees everything. And God says of His people, don't participate in her sins and receive her plagues. He's giving His people in the city of Rome two reasons. And by extension and application, those of us here today, two reasons why they should flee the allurements of this place called Babylon. One is he does not want them to participate in her sins. Now, the word participate is a form of the word koinonia. Most of you know the word koinonia. It refers to fellowship. We speak of our fellowship that we have together. Well, there's two kinds of fellowship in the Bible. There's good fellowship and there's bad fellowship. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, do not share responsibility, same word, koinonia, for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Likewise, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 11, he says, do not participate, same word, koinonia, Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. So the first reason to come out is God doesn't want us to be polluted by their sins. He wants us to come out and to be different. Listen, there are unbelievers who have fellowship. It's just a different kind. 
homosexuals who come out of the closet have a fellowship of sorts with one another. Heterosexuals who sit in the bar room, who go on the dating websites to find someone they can sleep with to whom they are not married, they have a fellowship of sorts. People sit around in a bar room and they drink alcohol and they have a fellowship, a camaraderie. They smoke dope. They have a fellowship. They celebrate sensuality watching their favorite TV show. They have a fellowship. They march with woman's rights, wicked rights, abortive rights. It's a fellowship of sorts, which is why James says, you adulteress. Don't you know that fellowship of the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So come out so you're not polluted by her sins. But also, he doesn't want those believers who are alive to be caught up in their plagues. Look further. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Now, during these years of tribulation, God will patiently endure the growing sins of Babylon with all of their rebellion and their evil system of commercialism. But just because someone becomes a believer in Christ, again, does not mean that their sin nature is dissolved. God warns, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Why? Because no temptation is overtaking you such as is common to man. And again, the truth is, with the restrainer gone, with the church removed from the planet, sin is going to spread like it has never, ever happened before. And so God continually calls His people to come out and to be separate. God knew that just as Lot could become comfortable in Sodom, that people during the tribulation age could get comfortable in Babylon because it is going to be the richest city on the earth. People will have everything that they want, material-wise. God told Abraham to get out of a wicked, pagan country and to come to the land that God wanted him to go to. God wanted his Hebrew people to get out of Egypt and to go to the promised land. And God says to his people today, do not be bound together with unbelievers bound together. It doesn't say don't be friends. Jesus was a friend of sinners. But don't find a fellowship, a camaraderie with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial or a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, and God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. God calls us to be separate. And yes, I was naive to think that the Game of Thrones was a video game. I heard that already from people. But it is, I am told this week, the single greatest TV series in the history of America. And between those who are watching it live and those who are live streaming, it's estimated over 100 million people are watching this graphic sex and God's name used in vain in a wickedness. God doesn't call you to watch that filth. Come out and be separate. Avoid the pollution of Babylon. But avoid the plagues that you might not participate and receive of her plagues. However, Babylon may express itself at different times in human history. 
God judges the sin. God judged the literal Babylon and Nimrod's day. They constructed that idol, that tower of Babylon, and then God brought it down crashing. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. The second Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar constructed, God once again warned that he would destroy that. He said by Jeremiah, flee from the midst of Babylon, and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment, for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. He is going to render recompense to her. And he did that, exactly. He destroyed Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. He first used Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Israel, to judge Israel. Then God destroyed Babylon. And with this last expression of Babylon, God says, verse 5, her sins have piled up. Her sins have piled up as high as heaven's. And God has remembered her iniquities. This is what happened in Noah's day. God said he would not always strive with men. He patiently waited for 120 years, and then he wiped humanity off the face of the earth. Likewise, with Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Likewise, James in the New Testament, your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cried out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. And then James says, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now, while this warning was true in James' day, it has full application for those, especially in the last day. It's applicable for especially those who will see the coming of the Lord. And so God sees it all, and he says here, her sins have piled up. You're using the New American Standard, I hope, and hopefully you have one with marginal references. You see the word piled up. It brings you out into the margin. You might want to circle. Literally, it means join together. It's a Hebrew, it's a, it's a Greek word that literally means glued together or welded together. This angel is saying that the sins of Babylon have been glued together, they've collected themselves, and they've piled up like a new tower of Babylon to heaven. The ancient tower of Babylon did not literally reach into the heavens, but the sins of Babylon will reach the ears of God, and the scripture says here, God has remembered her iniquities. So as we hear the voice of separation, first we are told to be separate from Babylon's deeds. Secondly, we are to be separate from Babylon's destruction, from her destruction. Now please don't miss the flow of thought. Verse 5 ends with the promise that God is writing down the deeds of man. And when we come to chapter 20, we will see God's books where he's recorded every sin, thought, word, and deed that the unbeliever has committed. God has remembered her iniquities. Now, if you've been saved, you have a different promise. Written by the prophet Jeremiah, quoted in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. In their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. It's not that God has a divine case of amnesia, but God doesn't hold your sin against you if you've met the living Christ. That's the promise of the new covenant. But here in verse 6, 
for the unchanging and the unrepentant people living on the earth, and he's focusing specially on Babylon because it's the headquarters for the whole world for the Antichrist. Again, religious Babylon was destroyed by the ten kings, but this is not religious Babylon. This is commercial Babylon, and God himself is going to destroy it. Look at verse 6 of chapter 18. Pay her back, even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds, and the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her. Now, this is the law of restitution at work. This is an illustration of the law of sowing and reaping, what people sometimes say, what goes around comes around. It reminds me of the prophet Obadiah. Uh, Seven years ago, I preached the prophet Obadiah. Why did I preach that? I've never heard a sermon in my life on the radio anywhere on the prophet Obadiah. And I had my son Grant when he was eight years old saying, Dad, tell me about Obadiah. And he said, Obadiah. And he couldn't even say the word. I said, son, someday I'm going to preach a sermon on the prophet Obadiah, if God will let me. Well, Obadiah 15, if you're new to the Bible, when you have a chapter with one verse, you don't say 1 colon 15, you just say 15, like Philemon 3 or Jude 9 or Obadiah verse 15, there's one chapter. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. That's the day we're studying. We're studying the first part of the day of the Lord called the Great Tribulation. As you have done, it will be done to you. That is, the penalty will correspond to the infractions. Your dealings will return on your head. Obadiah is looking down the corridors of time to this time called the day of the Lord and is reminding that people will reap that which they have sown. And now the revelation here in verse 6 is reminding us of the cup of God's wrath, and it's filled to the brim. The final drop has been put in. It is beginning to overflow. Pay back to her. This is an angel, God's servant, speaking verbally for all of heaven to hear to the living God. Pay her back even as she is paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. And the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her. Now, obviously, when you come to verse 6, this angel is no longer speaking to John. He's speaking directly to God. Give back to her. Pay her back. And, of course, as you read the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, you will see God's people asking him to bring wrath on unbelievers. We saw this already in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10. How long, O Lord? These are tribulation saints who have been beheaded. They're alive in heaven, and they're crying out at the throne. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, you may read something like that and say, well, that doesn't seem very Christian for these martyred saints to ask judgment on their murderers. After all, Jesus prayed for those who persecuted him. Stephen prayed for those who were stoning him to death. Well, I have no doubt that these probably prayed while they were on earth. But they're no longer on earth. They're in heaven. And so, yes, on the one hand, you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. But they're no longer on earth. They're in heaven. 
and they recognize that these are people confirmed in their unbelief, and it's not a matter of if God is going to judge them. It's been revealed that he is going to judge them. They're just asking when. When will their testimony be vindicated as true to the glory of God? You read the Old Testament Psalms, and there are what's called imprecatory Psalms, or imprecatory prayers, especially in the Psalms. To imprecate means to call down judgment or wrath. Now, I like C.S. Lewis. He was a good guy. But he was a baby Christian. And while he was an incredibly bright, sharp mind, he said some incredibly stupid and less than biblical things. Describing the imprecatory Psalms, he said they were terrible, contemptible, devilish, profoundly wrong, sinful prayers. No, he was wrong. Those men wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, but he had trouble accepting those Psalms as part of the canon of Scripture. We are called to be angry, but to sin not. There is a moral outrage. There is a righteous anger that the people of God are to express. And now God's angel joins the call. These people are obviously not going to repent, but they are going to be judged, and the angel invites God to pay them back double. Give back to her double according to her deeds. Literally, the Greek says, double to her double, because her wickedness in leading millions astray and slaughtering millions of converted believers have come up into heaven. And when he says double, it's another way of saying full. And it's a principle that runs all the way through Scripture about double recompense. For instance, in Exodus 22, if a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him and it is stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. All through Scripture, God speaks of double restitution. Well, now God is going to express it in judgment. And the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her. God is going to deal in doubles. Jesus said this, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Now, we often apply this verse to money only, and it's a legitimate application, but contextually, he's talking about condemnation and judgment and forgiveness. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So this is how God gives good gifts, and this is how God will administer his divine wrath. So God is telling his people, first, to be separate from Babylon's deeds. Second, he's saying, be separate from Babylon's destruction. Third, and finally, be separate from Babylon's deception. Be separate from her deception. Economic Babylon is going to bring glory to herself. And she thinks that she is so powerful and the strongest superpower in the history of man that she is untouchable. But we read the harsh lesson that will come in verse 7 to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. 
Now, this passage unfolds the threefold sin of Babylon. Number one, she glorified herself. She was filled with pride. She thought she was the superpower of superpowers, and God hates pride. We studied on Wednesday night, Romans 1.20, where the culture, the U.S. especially, but now the world, refuses to glorify God and give Him thanks. They worship themselves, the creation, rather than the Creator. And God says such pride invites judgment, but God has no pleasure in bringing judgment. The prophet Jeremiah says, but if you will not listen to it, a refusal to listen to Jeremiah's counsel. God said, if you will not listen to it, my soul will sob in secret for such pride. My eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. Jeremiah tells us that pride causes God to weep. He would rather withhold judgment than to give judgment. So first, they're filled with pride. The second sin is she lives sensuously. It is a word in Greek that is used of uninhibited sexual promiscuity coupled with excessive luxury. They will live sensuously both in their possessions and in their sex life. They think everything will be fine because with a one-world economy controlled through the 666, this will be the richest new class of people the world has ever seen. The world is falling apart, but they're living rich and fat, and they think all is fine. It's a literal playground for the rich and famous. Third, beyond the spirit of pride and sensuous lifestyle, they are driven by self-deception, thinking that she is untouchable in her self-deception that drives her lifestyle. God says to the degree that she glorified herself— and lived sensuously to the same degree her torment and mourning. The angel, once again, for a third time, is expressing the same truth. To the degree that she glorified herself, she will be paid back with torment. Now follow, for, meaning because, here's the reason why, because she, Babylon, says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. She saw herself as a queen, never to be dethroned. She saw herself not as a widow, that her way of living would never, ever end. Now, you will notice the change in typeset, right, in your text? That tells you this is an Old Testament quotation. And God is using an illustration of another Babylon in an earlier time when Nebuchadnezzar was ruling as king. And God used as an instrument to judge his people the, the king of Nebuchadnezzar. And the people of Israel thought they were fine, they were secure. And so God wrote this by his prophet, Yet you said, I will be a queen forever. These things you did not consider, nor remember the outcome of them. Now then, hear this, you sensual one who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I will not sit as a widow, nor no loss of children, but these two things will come on you suddenly in one day, loss of children and widowhood. They will come on you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. You felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. 
For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me, but evil will come on you, which you will not know how to charm away, and disaster will fall on you, for which you cannot atone, and destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. Listen, just as Nimrod's Babylon in one day was judged, and just as Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon in one day was judged, as he quotes here the prophet Isaiah, even so this coming Babylon in one day, people who thought they were secure, never be dethroned, never become a widow, and one day they will fall. For this reason, verse 8, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Now remember, People in the future, after the church is gone, they're going to be pouring over the revelation. They're going to be studying the next event on God's calendar. They'll be reading all about this. But this is not just for them. For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. This was originally given to seven churches some 2,000 years ago. And it's given to the people of Community Bible Church. So how are we going to apply this? Let me make three applications as we close. Number one, I am reminded that God will judge the world and none will be able to stop Him. God is going to judge the world and none will be able to stop Him. Now, some people think that God is too good to bring someone under His eternal judgment and therefore God is not going to intervene. And so they live as if they will never meet their maker, just as the people of Babylon thought that they would never meet God in judgment. Many people in our world, they will acknowledge the existence of God, but they live like He doesn't exist. They just want to live the way they want to live. They think they are safe. They think God is too good to condemn them. God is too good not to punish sin. God has a word for His people. He said through Paul, when they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. The Bible warns us not to make God in our own image, not to make God the way you want Him to be, but to believe the way He is revealed in Holy Scripture. And the book of Revelation, among other things, dismantles the false doctrine that God is so loving and so kind that He will never judge anyone who has not received His Son. And certainly, Revelation also dismantles the false notion that the God of the New Testament is somehow different from the God of the Old Testament. People who say that have obviously never read the New Testament. For God is pictured in the New Testament not only as a God of love and grace as He is in the Old, but also as a God of wrath and a God of judgment. People love to quote in the New Testament, God is love. But they don't like to quote, God is a consuming fire, which speaks of His righteous wrath in the book of Hebrews. People love to quote, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But they fail to quote the second half of the verse, the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Secondly, I'm reminded from this passage that you cannot hide from God. You cannot hide from God. These people in Babylon thought that they would live without consequence, that they were as secure as a queen, that they would never be dethroned, that they would never die and become widows. 
but you cannot hide from God. King David affirmed the impossibility of hiding from the presence of God in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? And then he proposes various directions. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the place of the grave, you're there. And then he proposes hiding in the darkness, but he realizes that the God, even the darkness, is like light to you. It's not dark at all. David finds great comfort in that, that he cannot hide from God. But the lost people try to hide from God Almighty. We've already studied in Revelation chapter 6, the people of this world will say, fall on us rocks, cover us. From the Lamb who sits upon the throne, if somehow they can hide from God Almighty. But no one will be able to hide from God. And if death comes early after death, the Bible says, comes the judgment. This passage affirms no one ever has been able or will ever be able to hide from God. Third and finally, you will never be able to stand for Christ unless you stand with Christ. You'll never be able to stand for Christ unless you stand with Christ. Are you ready to be rescued from all of this? Should Christ come and catch up the church today? If you know the Lamb, the wrath of God has already been released on your substitute. But if you've not met Jesus, then the wrath of God abides on you. And people who've heard the gospel prior to the rapture of the church will not believe. The Bible is clear. The only people who are converted after the rapture of the church are those who've never heard the gospel before in clarity and in power. Now, you may be thinking this morning, well, I don't like this kind of preaching. I've visited here long enough. I think I'll go back and watch Joel next week. Well, listen, you can soften the truth. You can suppress the truth. You can lessen the truth like a false prophet Joel Osteen does, but it does not change the truth one little bit. Asaph warns the listeners of God in the 76th Psalm, you even you are to be feared, O God, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? The prophet Nahum echoed the same question when he asked, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? Without Christ, no one can. Unless your life is, to quote Paul, has been hidden in Christ, then you are still by nature a child of wrath. Now, God is calling his people. This is the voice of separation. He is calling us to come out and to be different. You're going to be awed in this day if you are different. Yeah, if you don't know the Game of Thrones, you're going to be awed. You're not going to know what they're talking about. Yeah, you don't let your kids go to Captain America because they repeatedly use the Lord's name in vain, swear words, curse words, and they have an elicitation to homosexuality. Well, you know, he's got to learn sometime. No, God would have you to be wise to the things that are good and innocent to the things that are evil. And so we let our kids delve into that kind of stuff because we are just so used to it ourselves. And that's why you've got pastors quoting the Game of Thrones. Where are these guys coming from? Where are these Christians coming from? And they wonder why they never lead people to Christ. They wonder 
Why they have no impact for the kingdom of God? Because their hearts are so weak and sick and their light has gone out. And when the salt has lost its saltiness, it's good for nothing anymore except to be trampled underfoot. Listen, if you are here today without Jesus, through His all-seeing eyes, the one who sits on the throne knows everything about you, but He loves you, and He died for every sin you've ever committed. And unless you come to Him without the shedding of blood, and it's not animal blood, it's the blood of Christ, there is no forgiveness of sin. God has no way of being able to forgive you but through Jesus. But you must change your mind about sin. You must see it as wrong. You must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Now, our Father, we thank you today for this book that you've given us and the circumstances in which you allowed me to preach it, for you work all things together for good to those who love you, to those who are called according to your purpose. I pray today for someone who has never met Jesus Christ. You said today is the day to be saved. Tomorrow may be too late for them. Tomorrow they may fall sick and die. Today Christ could come back. And you warn that no one comes to the Father but by the Spirit. You warn that your Spirit would not always strive with them and He is striving with some today and He may stop tomorrow because they've said no for the last time. So help someone today within the sound of my voice, whether they're listening here or on the internet or by radio in some part of the country, help them in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, help us as your people not to be caught up in the spirit of the age, an age of lukewarmness and compromise and wickedness, but help us to come out and be separate. Help our light to shine bright and our salt to have real savor that men might see our good works and bring glory to you, our Father who is in heaven. We ask it in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Would you stand? If you're here and you've never made a public confession of faith to Jesus Christ, I want to give you that opportunity this morning. Everyone that Jesus called, he called publicly. He knew nothing of secret Christians. If you know Jesus, the Bible says you'll be unashamed of him. He asks you to confess him as Lord before men. And the scripture says if you're unwilling to do that, he'll never confess you before his Father who's in heaven. And ultimately, that confession is to be done symbolically through baptism. For baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. These who are baptized today gave glory to Jesus. They said, I give him all the credit for what he did for me. If you've never done that since you've been saved, it's an important step. If you're a Christian, the Bible knows nothing of a Christian who doesn't have a church home. And if you need a church, we need you. If you want to come and partner with us, then I invite you to leave your seat. Chris is going to lead us. If you have a decision to make, leave your seat and come here and meet me in the front.